I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the Microscope. Our guest today is Dr. Wendy Brown. She is a translational postdoc fellow at UC Irvine. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So I, I, I still don't know what this means. Tell me what a translational postdoc fellow is and, and what do you study? Um, I am in biomedical engineering, and I'm essentially like a normal postdoc researcher, but university, uh, well, particularly UC Irvine, has amazing resources focused on um, entrepreneurship and enabling faculty researchers and postdocs and, and other researchers to translate their technology that they create in the labs to hopefully companies, hopefully intellectual property or licensing their IP to other companies. Um, so the translational aspect of my postdoc comes in uh, relating to all that. So I'm basically not only doing more scientific training, but also learning about the process of tech translation and then hopefully making something happen by the end. So it, so your work in theory could wind up in the real world a lot sooner than maybe somebody else's. I would like to think so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of research do you currently do? I'm in cartilage uh, tissue engineering. So I actually did my PhD in cartilage tissue engineering as well. Um, my PhD as a whole was trying to engineer engineer neocartilage um, and then also engineer the subchondral bone below it. So I basically engineered osteochondral constructs that hopefully then in theory, could be used to repair small cartilage defects before they get worse in humans. Um, so I'm still doing cartilage stuff, uh, just a little bit less bone now, um, and actually looking into different cartilages like uh, nasal septal cartilage. All right, all right so this is a, maybe a, a stupid non-scientist engineer question. When you say you're engineering these kinds of cartilage things, does that mean you're building it from scratch or you're figuring out how to repair can you explain that for me all of the above actually all, all at uh, once totally not a stupid question at all <laughs> <laughs> so we um we use animal models a lot um basically and you know any any research you essentially have to do in a non-human model before you try it in humans um, and particularly cartilage stuff for some reason human cartilage cells are like really uncooperative they don't like to grow they don't like to expand. They don't like to remake cartilage once they've already made it. But anyway, um, so we take like sheep cells, for example, sheep cartilage cells. We take them out of cartilage. So they're just single cells on their own. Um, sometimes we expand them in numbers. So uh, you could start with one cell and wind up with one million cells. Um, and then you take those expanded cells. We do some other culture steps to make sure that they still know their chondrocytes. And then we put them into a culture environment where they're basically like, hey, you're, you're a chondrocyte. I'm a chondrocyte. Let's be friends and make cartilage again. And then we get this natural cartilage, but cartilage that's made outside of the body. So, yeah, it's it's natural, but it's also kind of synthetic. And and you're, you're, what you're working on is what how to put them in, like what to what sort of environment to put them in to have them rebuild? Or are you seeing putting them in a situation to have them rebuild a certain way? We um, have a system that we put these cells in that they make pretty good cartilage in. 
But a lot of the research we do in our lab is applying different stimuli to those cartilage constructs at various time points to try to make them stiffer, stronger, Ah, um, biochemically more like native cartilage, you know, basically just trying to get them as close to healthy native cartilage as possible. And then um, in addition to that, thinking about ways that you can actually put that construct into a cartilage injury in your knee, for example, how would you put it in surgically? How would you integrate it into the native tissue? Um, Anything and everything. That makes more sense to me. That's really cool. I feel like there are so many practical applications of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think anybody who's ever played any sport or been physically active ever probably has some sort of cartilage injury. And how did you get into this field? Or, or sort of, how did, how did you choose cartilage? This is going to sound really weird, but for some reason I have always been really interested in cartilage. <laughs> Okay, you're right. It does I know, right? Like you, when you're like, you're like ten years old or something. You're like, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I'm like, I want to make cartilage. But like, legitimately, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I have no idea. I think part of it came from like just knowing that like cartilage makes up really important parts of your body, like your knees. You have cartilage in your jaw joint. Um, you know, any any articulating joint, basically. But then also you have your facial cartilages, like your nose and your ears. And if you don't have, like, healthy knee cartilage, you might be in pain, but you have some options. Options don't work very well, you know. But, like, ultimately you can get a knee replacement and, like, live a totally awesome, normal, and pretty active life. But if you don't have a nose or ears, your quality of life is is probably not very good. So I think that's partially where my interest came from, you know, like wanting to engineer or make cartilage to help people live better lives. I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by your early desire to fix people's broken noses, but um, do you have, <laughs> do you have, I mean, this, this may be a personal question, but did you have, you know, athletic injuries or things? injuries or things like that or friends or family that did that you saw firsthand or was this sort of all hypothetical until you got into to school and were researching it yeah I mean I know plenty of people with knee and hip replacements I think we all do um nobody with really like facial um kind of injuries or or deformities or anything like that um I yeah I'm not really sure where that came from but you know in addition to being um now a, a postdoc researcher, I was a professional cheerleader for seven years, um, retired in 20, late 2016, I think. So I, I'm sure I have injuries. <laughs> you you guarantee part of the job, right? So, and I think also there's part of like, I forget what like the, the like mental kind of like, um, it's like a like a syndrome or something where you like medical students get it where they think whatever they're studying yeah. they have. They- <laughs> like I'm pretty sure after studying cartilage for you know whatever six years, I am sure that I'm headed for osteoarthritis. <laughs> Aren't we all? So all right, you snuck in there this professional cheerleader thing, and <laughs> and um and I want to ask you a couple things about that because it goes along with breaking all sorts of stereotypes and and all that stuff. One, um. How tell us a teeny bit about that, but but the second part is how do you like how do you play with the being? Oh, I'm a professional cheerleader. I also have a PhD in biomedical research, but whatever, no well, big deal. Well, and, and how do you have time for all that? That's oh, well, ten that questions, too. but let's, let's I guess 
answer Lindsay's first, I guess. <laughs> um, there are times where I don't sleep very much. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, well, that's yeah, reassuring. Um, so just to give you guys some background, I um, so I started, well, I was on my dance team in college, and my last year in college, um, I was in Atlanta. My last year in college, I cheered for the Atlanta Falcons um, because my collegiate dancing coach at the time had... Um, was cheering for the Falcons and had cheered for the uh, Atlanta Hawks, the NBA team there. And I just, like, she was also, like, beautiful and smart, and she was, like, getting her MBA and working full-time. And, you know, when you're, like, 17 or 18, you're like, oh, my God, I love you. I want to be with you, you know? <laughs> yeah. So she was just, like, a really, really powerful role model for me. And I saw, like, how much she loved cheering and all of her friends that she had made. So I auditioned my last year and, like, somehow miraculously made the team. Like, I don't know, looking back, I was like, what were you doing? But <laughs> anyway, made the team, loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, it was like a second family to me because I uh, grew up in Pennsylvania and, you know, going to college in Atlanta is, like, very far away. So I made some amazing friends doing that. And then when I went to grad school out in uh, Davis in Northern California, I knew I wanted to keep cheering just to, you know, have that network and have that family. Um, so I cheered for the Sacramento Kings for a year and then missed football like terribly. I never realized how much I loved football until <laughs> I wasn't cheering for it, you know? And then um, did one year with the Sacramento Mountain Lions, which was like a um, United football league, like a semi-pro football team in Sacramento, and then did four years with the Oakland Raiders. Um, yeah. And, and, and you managed to do that while getting your PhD. Yeah, yeah. I see. I, I'm tired I'm just really, thinking about it. Yeah, right. I'm like really, really lucky that I had such a supportive advisor, and like we kind of joke about it now. Um, but I, I feel like I must have like come in a little bit cavalier, like you know, when I was like a new grad student. Like, by the way, I'm a professional cheerleader. What do you think about it? And he was like, "Um, oh, that's great." <laughs> so I just got you know really lucky because I feel like a, a lot of people might normally be like science only, like grad school, like you have to take these classes and do well and blah, blah, blah. And like, all of that is true. Like you definitely have to, you know, answer to your, your priorities, but it like, wasn't, it just wasn't an issue because somehow I, I could juggle everything. So the, the bigger question that I have, which is something that, first of all, it's incredibly impressive anyway, but, but the, the thing that confounds me in a way is like, I think it's great that, that you can use that as like, a, I was an NFL cheerleader and a NBA cheerleader and I have a PhD, but do you sort of run into this like stereotypes of like, I don't know, I just feel like there's something there that you get pigeonholed or something. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely possible. I, I feel really fortunate that I have not really seen a lot of that, um, at least in my engineering field, because uh, biomedical engineering is like almost 50% women. And at one point we had like seven women and uh, female grad students and postdocs and one male grad student in our lab. So we were like completely destroying stereotypes there. But um, there are so many like really successful women in biomedical engineering that it's less common. But that's, I, I don't know, I kind of like, you know, playing my cards close to my chest. And then like, when somebody finds out, they're like, Oh, my gosh, like, no way. Um, but you know, along with that, I am part of um, science cheerleader, an organization of other current and former professional cheerleaders with degrees and careers in STEM fields. And we do a ton of outreach. Um, 
you know, to break those stereotypes, to try to challenge those in, in like a, a non-threatening way. And then also, um, a big goal is to encourage other young women to be interested in science and engineering and know that it's not as intimidating. No, I think it's cool. I just always was curious how you balance those two completely sort of bla- the, bla- the the overarching superficial stuff. Like, I, yeah, there's always tons of other stuff underneath it. I mean, I, I we've all been there. I mean, any any of us on this on this podcast have been there. But like the sort of first reaction, gut reaction stuff. Yeah, I think they all everything is more connected than it may seem on the surface or than people think. And I think one of the main things that cheerleading and dancing has done for me in terms of like school and research and stuff like that is it's made me realize that literally everything is a skill. You know, you don't, you're not born knowing how to walk. You're not, you don't walk into practice already knowing to dance. Like you have to work at it. You have to go through the learning process and then you have to go through the practicing process. And I've definitely struggled with like a lack of academic confidence at some points, but I just like, sit down in front of my textbook and think like, all right, I don't know this stuff now and that's okay. I'm not supposed to. But if I read this and I pay attention in class and study hard enough, I'll figure it out. Everything is a skill. I did this other thing yesterday. I learned this new dance. We're performing it this weekend. I feel great about it. I can do the same thing with digital signal processing, which is like the hardest class I've ever taken. (laughs) Why are you laughing so hard about that? I love digital signal processing. <laughs> ah, no way. Uh, I'm not great at it, but I, but I do love it. Um, well, actually, that's a really good sort of mindset. And I've noticed that a lot of, at least in my experience, a lot of engineers tend to be musically inclined or they spend a lot of hours um, playing musical instruments. And I guess that's a very similar type of thing in, in, in the sense that you... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we do like patterns. Um, <laughs> that's great. So you're, but you, Wendy, you're retired now. You said, I am. Yeah. So I think my last season was the 2016 football season. Um, is that true? Uh, yep, 2016. The season that ended in 2016. Um, so I have been officially retired for a year. Um, now, now here's the real question: How does your cartilage feel about that now? You know. <laughs> I'm actually noticing more pain and no! like weird things now. And I'm like, oh man, I was just like ignoring this. If like, you know, it was like coffee and an and adrenaline fueled, like just energy where I wasn't noticing anything. <laughs> but now I'm getting like a normal amount of sleep every night. And, like, <laughs> yeah. So I want to, um, I, I find this sort of tying those things together. I mean, because you're working in cartilage, which is something that's, you know, really relevant to athletes and to sports and, and dance and all that stuff. Do you sort of feel your exposure to sort of athletics in general is helping you with what you're working on, especially with the translational part of your postdoc, right? That you're working on like patents and products and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think I've definitely realized the potential impact this can have on people's lives. Uh, you know, I'm not just from like you know, whoever Eli Manning or whoever got stem cell injections in his neck or, you know, some some athlete that like tore his ACL and now his meniscus is blown or something like that. But like these injuries happen to people, also normal people on a daily basis, like construction workers that fall from, you know, staircases or just, you know, really anybody. It can happen when you go skiing. It can happen when you trip and fall. It can 
happen playing pickup basketball. And these like one-time events can have such a huge impact in people's lives. Is there like a fun fact or a weird fact about cartilage that we might not know, the general public might not know about? So when you stand up from like, let's say sitting on a chair to standing up, the what is actually bearing the load when you do that is the water in your cartilage, not the actual tissue itself. I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> yeah. So cartilage is like 80% water. Um, and that's like literally when you like put pressure on your cartilage, the water inside your cartilage is what is bearing the load that you're putting on it, not the actual like proteins and glycoproteins and cells and stuff within the tissue. So the cartilage is just sort of providing like a holder for that water to hold the pressure or kind of yeah that's so weird yeah so it's like a really really dense matrix so if you think about it like a sponge like a kitchen sponge it's like really really dense sponge that makes in addition to the density like there's like also negative charges that hold water in and it makes it very difficult for the water to move out so it's yeah the water, it's just really difficult to squeeze out. It does happen over time. So if you stand there for, like, let's say two hours straight, the water is slowly going to seep out of your cartilage, and then the actual tissue um, will start bearing more of that load proportionately to the water. But yeah, when you stand up immediately, it's it's mostly the water that, that you're standing on, I guess. Well, Momo, I think you got your answer there. Okay, wow. <laughs> That's cool. I'm, like, such a weirdo. I think cartilage is, like, so cool and it's like built very well for what it's supposed to do i just think it's amazing except for when it breaks down and then like all hell breaks loose (laughs) i mean i know you're working on all these little things but what are you sort of looking forward to what is what's the next sort of the the big goal when it comes to cartilage research is it you know solving how to rebuild it in humans like what's what's the sort of thing that gets you excited about this research area um i think the one of the most exciting parts for me is that there's kind of nowhere to go but up. Um, Because current, I mean, current therapies are like really, they might buy patients like five years without pain, depending on how active they are. Um, But ultimately, like they don't stop cartilage degeneration and most people will wind up with a knee replacement. Um, But tissue engineering based approaches and products and stuff are are becoming more popular. There are like several of them that have either passed or in clinical trials in the US that are promising. So it's like once you get a few things through the FDA, the FDA like gets its bearings and knows like, okay, well, we've already seen this, it's safe. We've already seen this other thing, which is safe. So this other product, it's easier for that third product to kind of like get through the FDA and actually make it to help people. And at least I don't want to speak for everybody else in biomedical engineering, but at least me like, like helping people is why I got into this field. You know, like I would love to see the research I'm doing, which could theoretically help people actually make it into somebody's knee and help them not have pain. How close are you to something like that? I think in a research setting, probably. I don't want to say like very close, but like a lot closer than maybe it seems. Um, we make really awesome cartilage. We make 
engineered cartilage that has mechanical and uh, mechanical properties and, and content very similar to healthy native tissue. You can hold it, you can squish it, you can stretch it. It looks great. It's flat. Um, so like from a research setting, I think that there are a lot of groups that do some really awesome work and have really awesome products. Um, but it's just, it's very complicated to get something approved to actually put into a human. And for good reason, you know, you don't want to put something into a human and have no idea what it's going to do to them. But that's like, I don't want to say it's the hard part because I have the advantage of like building upon 20 years of illustrious cartilage research. (laughs) You know know what I mean? But um, yeah, it's just like getting it clinically approved for use in humans is a very daunting challenge. Not saying it's not possible, but intimidating. I have a, I have a, I have very limited biology knowledge. So if this is a stupid question, Tell me, um, can can cartilage? Can we just put cartilage into the human body without their like without you know having trans? Uh, y- y- yeah, like yeah. sort of issues with like transplant <laughs> type stuff. Transplant, yeah, yeah, like okay. like an immune response. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, no, not again. Totally not a stupid question. Um, so like for a heart or something like that, you can transplant it into people, but you have to take. Um, drugs that suppress your immune system so that your body won't attack this transplanted organ. Cartilage, though, is different. It's considered to be, quote, immune privileged. um, And most of that comes from the fact that it just doesn't really have a blood supply. So, you know, like your immune cells circulate um, a lot through your blood. So if it doesn't have access to blood, um, there's less of like a chance for immune cells to get in there. Um, In addition, like that the, the matrix is so dense that kind of like protects the cells from the immune cells seeing the cartilage, the transplanted cartilage cells as like foreign. Um, how It's not completely immune privilege though. There is some research that, sh- that shows that it's a little bit more immunogenic than, than everybody says it is, but like compared to a heart or like a, a liver or kidney or something, it's definitely not not as much. And I think, so people that get um, cartilage transplants, so you can take like an osteochondral plug from somebody else and put it into you to fix one of your um, cartilage injuries, don't take immune suppression medication. Totally not a stupid question because there's like tons of research like happening on like that very topic. Mm -hmm. I just, it boggles my mind that these things are possible just in general, but okay. That's awesome. <laughs> but I believe it. Um, what's like, what's the sci-fi future with cartilage? Is there one? Or are we sort of already there? I I think that we're pretty much already there. We're, we're approaching it, you know? No, I mean, I, you know what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah. That, like, I feel you like You know, I think is... the, the magic wand most orthopedic surgeons would uh, wish for is to, um, you know, not even like open up somebody's knee, but to like take a magic wand and just wave it over the the injury, like whatever that tool is they use in Star Trek. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? Let me wave this thing over you. Um, but we're, you know, we're getting close to that. We do the the surgeries where you insert the probes through the knee. You don't have to open up the entire knee. Um, we have little bits of replacement tissue that are 
generated in a lab setting, you know, without ethical issues. We're just, yeah, I, I would say that we're in, I don't know, in the spirit of the Falcon Heavy that launched today, you know, we're, we're on our way toward Mars. We're not there yet. <laughs> did you guys watch that launch by I the way? did that was like I incredible. did of course well, I who doesn't want to see a Tesla car launched into space for no reason oh my gosh I we watched it in in the lab and I like almost cried when those two boosters landed at the same time I was like this is so magical <laughs> I was so skeptical all week going this is not gonna work this is whatever and then when they actually landed I was pretty weepy too <laughs> what did, you, did you hear this is not related to the Falcon Heavy, but the other one that they just launched that like wasn't supposed to survive and it landed like inappropriately on water and it still was reusable and and SpaceX was like, oh cool, they saved one. We'll just use that one again too. Like <laughs> that's it amazing. Like, it wasn't supposed to survive, but it survived, so we're good. No big deal. That's amazing. Awesome. It is amazing. We are in the future sometimes here. Seriously, we're living we're living in Star Trek in Star Wars time. Wendy, what did you wish you knew about cartilage or, or what your research is before you got into it that you know now or that just sort of blows your mind every time you think about it? Um, I Maybe not things that I wish I knew, but I didn't realize how much weird stuff I would be doing. Like <laughs> shaving sheepskin. Oh, um, yeah, that, that's a new one. We were, like, trying to get stem cells out of the dermal layer of skin and, like, differentiate those stem cells into cartilage. It's difficult. But, yeah, sh literally shaving sheepskin in the lab. Um, or Yeah, I, that was one of the weirdest things. I was like, well, if I don't get a PhD, I can... Go out to be sheep animals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's just, I, like, especially with... I mean, I think any PhD, you know, because you're at a point where you're forging your way in the field you know you're doing things or you're trying to do things that other people haven't done before and that's where all that weird stuff comes in that you don't think you need to be doing like shaving sheepskin until the day that you have to shave sheepskin or it, maybe okay so back to your question one thing i wish i would have known is that no idea is crazy or stupid because there were ideas that I had literally as a first year, like, oh, why don't we mix these cell types and blah, blah, blah. And somebody somewhere was like, that's never going to work. Don't waste your time. Whatever. And then four years later, somebody else in the lab tried it. And I was like, I mean, I thought about it, but like, I don't think it's going to work. But yeah, whatever, go ahead. And like, it worked and it turned into a paper. Like, don't, you know, no idea is stupid. And I think sometimes the best ideas come from people that, know a, know enough about the area but aren't like so into it that they're like a little bit jaded and like biased of, with like what is already happening and like you know the papers they've read oh well they're doing it this way so I should I should do it this way because they're successful if you're like fresh and you're enthusiastic you're willing to try anything that's where like some amazing ideas come from because they're just literally ideas that you came up with out of your out of the blue maybe not out of the blue but definitely not like biased how does one procure sheepskin <laughs> um you go to a, Amazon um, a meat purveyor um conveniently you know like there are a lot of like farms uh davis is actually like super rural so you go to a farm and you talk to a guy named girl halio um <laughs> of course you do <laughs> 
it's really good if you can make these connections. If you like talk to the same guy again, then you're like, hey, Rogelio, nice to see you again. I need some more sheep belly He's like, skin. I got you covered. He's like, I got you. I know exactly what you need this time. And then he gives it to you in a trash bag and you drive it back. <laughs> I don't know if that's appropriate to say, but no, I mean, it totally is because that's the way it works. You know, I love it. I love it. This is how science gets done. <laughs> Seriously, it is. It's not all sterile stainless steel lab benches and white coats, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're doing a postdoc now. Where do you see yourself going forward? Do you want to teach? Do you want to patent products? Where do you? What do you sort of see in your future? That is the million dollar question. Do you see your future yet? <laughs> I have an idea of things that I would really like to do, and I'm not sure how it's all going to fit together in terms of like a career. I, I love teaching, um, especially younger students, like freshmen, because I'm like a total weirdo, and like I love to like get people enthusiastic. Um, and I think that like, you know, freshmen, younger kids, especially like people from underprivileged backgrounds, like the more enthusiastic you can be with them, the earlier on, the more enthusiastic they are going to be about science. Um, so I definitely love to teach. I love doing research. You know, this, this is our future. We are literally forging the path of, in my case, cartilage tissue engineering um, and a lot of other really, really cool fields. And so I definitely want to to keep doing research and, and try to be on that cutting edge. Um, I also want to be an astronaut. I don't know. <laughs> so just a few options. You know, just a few. Okay, so Wendy, um, you're part of something called Project Mercury. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so through Science Cheerleader, um, I became part of this um, project team, basically, um, where we... So wrote this research proposal to essentially do, we called it a microbial playoff in space. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, I mean, that's what it was. It's um, a microbial ecology research project, but um, we spun it as a, a playoff because we wanted to get uh, people we call citizen scientists involved. Um, they're non-science people that just may have a general interest or knowledge in science. Um, so we wanted to get those citizen scientists involved and, and leverage their interests in something like professional sports to make science seem more fun and less intimidating. So um, this is actually how I know Jenna, but we were on this project team together and um, me and another graduate student in um, Jenna's lab, we helped develop the scientific aims of the proposal. And then um, Jenna and uh, another researcher from her lab, uh, David, got on board and they did actually all of the um, like assaying and like pipetting and stuff. And so with this microbial playoff, we had citizen scientists from around the country, over 2,000 of these people, um, sample high-touch surfaces in their homes and buildings, like doorknobs and keyboards, and um, we had like stadium seats, and a practice football from the Raiders stadium, and a lot of really, really cool places. Then um, Jenna and David and the grad student Russell, they all worked together and they sequenced all of these samples and figured out 48 of them that um, were interesting and safe 
And we flew those to the space station um, on a literally SpaceX rocket. And so astronauts on the space station, then um, they kept our samples frozen and they took them out and measured the growth of these microbes over a, a time period. And they, uh, we wound up having winners like the best huddle and the best tip off and the best sprinter. So like the best sprinter was the microbe that grew the fastest in any 24 hour period. Um, so again, <laughs> things to like kind of relate it back to professional sports. And then, um, we compared those to ground control plates. So the same microbes that were collected on earth just grown in, um, earth gravity conditions. And so we were able to compare samples between earth and microgravity and if they behave differently, stuff like that. Um, and it's actually like really cool. A pop Warner cheerleading team, discovered a new species of microbe that they collected from a stadium seat at the Coronado High School in uh, Coronado near San Diego. What was the end result of that? Like, what happens, like, did you give results back to the people? Like, what, you know, mm -hmm. what, what came out of that project? Yeah, so we have a website. It's called uh, spacemicrobes.org or that's the, the URL for it, spacemicrobes.org. And we have the results listed there. We also have... Um, printable almost like baseball trading cards for each microbe that we sent into space <laughs> Love it. um so we have the results up there we have the best sprinter and the best huddle and all of all of our winning microbes and then um actually there are two at least two um papers scientific peer-reviewed papers um that were published in peer j uh, as a result of the project and i think that there's at least one more that i am not on but yeah, so I think this was like a really awesome community outreach project, but also scientifically fruitful. Now, all you need to do is a, an annual March Madness version of this. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. All right, Wendy, um, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was awesome. Hopefully, hopefully you guys got some good stuff. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. <laughs>